0: Good morning. Let me get settled in here. All right. We can't pray too much, so let's go to the Lord and ask Him for help this morning. <clears throat> Holy Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to shape your people this morning. We pray this. In Jesus name. Amen. All right. I don't know if you're like me, but before you'll spend $10 on something, you might spend about 10 hours researching all your options. You know something's wrong when you're looking at a broom and you're going through 15-point checklists, looking at all the pros and cons of this brand versus that brand. It's just a broom. You know, it just, it'll get the job done. It really doesn't matter. But we're always weighing our options, right? We, we want to get the most Bang for our buck. I am, of course, describing our modern consumer mindset. When it comes to church membership, I wonder how many of us see membership as just another item on the shelf. It's something that we can decide, and I'll buy it, but first I've got to decide whether or not it's worth it to me. But is that how we should view church membership? Is joining a church really just supposed to be an exercise and cost benefit? analysis. In a similar way, I wonder if we struggle with church membership because of our extreme aversion to commitment. You know, commitment is hard for us. It's, uh, we look at something like a broom, we look at something like church membership, and we think, when I make a decision, I'm, I'm cutting off all of my options. And we love having options. We want freedom. You know, we want freedom to change directions at any time we want, on top of all of that, we've all experienced the pain that comes with commitment that goes poorly. Or like a kid who touches a hot stove and thinks to himself, "If I don't ever want to get burned again, I just need to stay out of the kitchen." So maybe we hesitate to join a church because we want to keep our options open, or maybe we hesitate because we're scared we're going to get burned again. But should Christians let these things keep them? From committing to a local church. And finally, maybe we are slow to join a church because we view it as a voluntary association. When we hear the word membership, maybe we think of a club, you know, a a gym, uh, something like the 4-H club. You can join if you want. We don't have to. It's totally just a personal decision. However, is the church really just another club? Or is it something entirely different? And we need to see it that way. Whatever the reasons, this I do know. Too many Christians treat church membership lightly. Instead of committing to a local church, many Christians decide the best option for them is to go the Lone Ranger Christian route, independent, strong, not held back by others. And if such a Christian does decide to join a church they seem content only to have the title of member as long as it doesn't come with any baggage sure you can call me a member here's some symptoms of our misunderstandings of church membership christians often think they can make a habit of not regularly attending church for those christians who do attend many often think it's okay to visit indefinitely without formally joining Christians often think baptism has nothing to do with the local church. Christians often view the Lord's Supper as a private, personal, kind of mystic experience between themselves and Jesus. Christians often don't integrate their lives with other believers throughout the week, and they miss out on the joy of a tight-knit, believing community. Christians often make major decisions about where they're going to work, who they're going to marry, where they're going to move, without stopping and taking serious consideration about how it might affect their ability to be meaningfully involved in the local church. And Christians often miss out on the joyful responsibility of church membership, which is that you get to look after the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical well-being of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Understand. Brothers and sisters, that this is a tragedy. This is not a matter of indifference. This is not something that Christians can afford to be apathetic about. The truth is, church membership is God's program for shaping your Christian walk. It's His plan for evangelism, it's His plan for discipleship. It is the means by which Christians everywhere will show off the glory of His manifold wisdom. To the watching world. But if we fail to understand the responsibilities and the benefits of church membership, our evangelism will suffer, our discipleship will be crippled, and Christians everywhere will only give off a faint glow of God's glory. Instead of coming together like a bonfire on a a mountaintop, we're scattered like lonely coals in the valley. My hope is that we will think well about church membership and that we'll be able to accomplish that at least a little bit this morning. I have three points for you, for my note takers, if you want to jot them down. Point number one what is church membership? Point number two how do you become a member? And point number three what are the responsibilities and benefits of membership? What is church membership? How do you become a member? What are the responsibilities and benefits of membership? Point number one, what is church membership? A church member is simply someone who has formally joined themselves to a body of believers. Every Christian believes in church membership. Now, I wonder, does that surprise you? Now, I don't mean that every Christian believes in the local church membership. Far too few do. Instead, what I mean is that every Christian believes and recognizes membership in the universal church, which is the invisible church. It's a church of all believers that extends across all time and all space. And Christians should believe in this universal church. That's a good thing. When Jesus came, he established the new covenant in his blood. And in order to be a part of that new covenant, all you have to do is repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And the moment you do that, you are saved and you are joined to Christ's body, which is just another way of saying you are being joined to the universal church. So that means there's only two types of people in the world, those who are members of the universal church and those who are not members of the universal church. And virtually every Christian recognizes it. When you see another Christian, you say, yes, that is a brother or a sister that is a part of the body of Christ. We could see this all over the scripture, but in case you're not convinced, this one's pretty clear. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29 through 30 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And here it is. Just as Christ does the church, because we all are members of his body, to which Christians everywhere say, amen. You and I are members of the universal church. But, brothers and sisters, somehow we've missed one of the main points of membership in the body of Christ. What you are by position in the invisible church, you must put into practice in the visible church. Said another way, The benefits and responsibilities we have as members of the universal church must express themselves in the local church. And said one last way, what God commands you to do as a Christian, he is commanding you to do as a member of a local church. So for example, when God says, bear with one another, He primarily means bear with one another in your local fellowship. The same could be said about all the one another's in the Bible. The vast majority of the commands that God has given us is a command to a Christian that is inseparable from God's expectations on the church member. That's huge. That's huge. How do you obey God? You live out your life in the local church. That's where you do it. That's the ecosystem of your obedience to God. And there's so much confusion on this point among Christians, amongst real blood-bought Christians, but that confusion is not found in the Bible. The Bible is crystal clear. So go ahead, if you would, please turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll be kind of dancing around in Acts. It doesn't matter if Will says church membership's important, it matters... God says church membership is important in Acts chapter 2 we will see that being a Christian expresses itself in the local church so on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and Peter begins to preach powerfully and winsomely to a diverse crowd and then down in verse 37 it says that Peter's preaching cut the people to their heart so the people asked the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So at this moment, okay, they've repented of their sins. They've trusted in Jesus Christ in their hearts. In that moment, they were joined to the universal church, they were joined to Christ's body. But look at how membership in that body. Immediately expresses itself in the body of the local church. Jump down to verse 41 and follow along with me. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were added, right? Added to what? Well, they were added to the local church there in Jerusalem. He goes on to say, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So there you have it. For the very first believers, we see that their membership in the universal church was expressing itself by participation in the local church. Look what they did. They, they settled down in Jerusalem. They submitted themselves to the apostles' teachings and began regularly gathering together for ministry. Now you might say, wait, hold on, Will. The words local church are not to be found in here at all. And that's true. While the Bible doesn't use the phrase local church in these verses, it describes the local church to a T. Look at what they did. They churched to listen to the apostles and to break bread and to pray and to share all things in common and to distribute to people's needs and to break bread in their homes and, most importantly, to come together at the temple. That's what the word church means. It means a gathering. They began gathering. They didn't join the universal church get baptized, stick up their deuces, and then turn and walk away and go do their own thing. No, they integrated their lives together right there in Jerusalem with the other believers. They changed everything so that they could gather together as a church. It was just understood that when you became a Christian, you put your faith into practice in the local church. That's why we also read, what I think is a fascinating verse. This is something, go home and look at this verse again and again. Verse 47. And the Lord added to their number, that is the church, day by day those who were being saved. Do you see it? Do you see how being added to the local church and being saved in Peter's mind is almost indistinguishable? It's almost the exact same event. It is a different event, but it's so related, it might as well be the same event. Here in verse 47, that's what he says. But there's more. As we keep reading in Acts, we learn that the numbers of believers there in the church began to grow. Were, their membership was swelling. By Acts chapter 4, verse 4, the number of men who had come to believe was about 5,000. It's interesting that they know that number. Right? Notice that they must have had some way of keeping a roll of how many people there were. There was some kind of record-keeping about the members who were part of this church. And then we see in chapter 5, verse 12, if you're still not convinced, this is a church, that they were all meeting together in Solomon's portico. All of them, he says, in chapter 5, verse 12, which is exactly what you would expect a church to do. Everything was going well for these churches, or for the, for the members here in the the church in Jerusalem. And then the persecution came. And a lot can be said about that, but for our purposes, look at chapter 8, verse 4. Luke tells us that this persecution led to some of these believers being scattered throughout the region. And he says that everywhere that they were scattered, they took the gospel with them, wherever they went. But notice, as the gospel began to spread, you don't just hear about a bunch of random, isolated, lonely Christian conversions. What we learn about as we read through the book of Acts is that churches began popping up all over the place. Now, why is that? Because when new believers join Christ's body, they immediately form together into local churches, into local bodies. When gospel seeds are scattered, it doesn't grow single blades of grass, but it grows forest. We could trace this idea even further through the book of Acts. And then we could explore the epistles and we could look at the pastoral letters and we could even go to the uh, revelation of John. And what you'll find everywhere in the New Testament, consistently, time after time, is that Christian and member of a local church are nearly synonymous ideas. Church membership, then, is not confused in the mind of the authors of the Bible. And I say with sadness, and I don't want to sound... Prideful or arrogant. But what is confusing is how we got to a place where membership in the universal church can be completely cut off from membership in the local church. It just isn't there. God intends these things to walk hand in hand, and so we should practice it in the same way. We should practice church membership like God wants us to. Which brings us in to point number two how do you become a member? Before you can wear the team jersey, you have to be a soccer player. Before you can wear the badge, you have to actually be a police officer. Well, in the same way, before you can join the local church, you have to be a Christian. So as I said before, all that is required of you to become a Christian is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So let's imagine that. Let's imagine the Christian has done that. Okay, check. I'm in the universal church. I'm a believer. But he still isn't a member of the local church. So something has to happen. Well, you can't just raise both your hands and declare, I am a Christian. Right? You don't have the authority to do that any more than a, than a police officer can say, I am now a police officer, or someone can say I'm a police officer. As I say that, I wonder if that greats against your understanding of identity. We are conditioned, me included, to see ourselves uh, as people who can self-identify as something in private, then take that into the public, and the public is supposed to just approve and understand. Hey, you identify as that? Great. We believe that you know you, and so we'll accept it. You're in. Well, We kind of do the same thing with Christianity, uh, unwittingly, but that's not how it works. Individuals do not have the authority to declare themselves de facto members of the body of Christ. Understand, the church must give you the badge. The church must give you the team jersey. Now listen, I am not saying that the church is the one who can give or take away your salvation. I am not saying that personally you cannot make a commitment to Christ and be saved. Yes, amen, that has to happen. We should do that. It's vitally important. But I am saying that the church possesses the unique authority to observe your life and render a judgment on whether or not to recognize or reject your claim to Christ. You do not have that authority. The church has that authority. So the question then is how does the church... Do that. Well, let's think back to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. We read this Those who received Peter's word, that is, those who became Christians, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there you have it. First, you believe the gospel, and then the local church adds you to their membership through baptism. We could look at that in several places. In the book of Acts, where one of the first things a new convert does is get baptized into membership in the local church. And remember, this didn't originate with the apostles. Peter didn't wake up one morning and think, oh, I've got a great idea. In order to add people to the church, we'll just dunk them underwater. No, that's not what happened. The apostles learned this from Jesus. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son And the Holy Spirit. And the apostles said, okay, got it. That's what we need to do. And so they go out there and they start making disciples and evangelizing and they start baptizing people. And as they start baptizing people, what happens time and time and time and time again? Local churches are formed. So you put it all together. Baptism from the local church is how we say to another person, yes, you are one of us, and then we add them to the body. Much more could be said about baptism. We'll have to save that for the coming weeks when we talk about the ordinances. Okay, so I said that the first requirement for becoming a member of the local church is that you are actually a Christian. So before the local church approves of your claim to Christ and then dunks you or accepts a previous dunking, we have to take a few steps back, okay? The, the, the church has to do something to figure out with confidence that you're a believer. When you're saved, a little halo doesn't appear above your head. That would be really convenient, but that's not what happens. And God didn't equip the church with, like, spiritual x-ray goggles. That would have been great. So how is the church supposed to know if you're a Christian before they receive you? Answer, a church must, a church must examine the credibility of your profession of faith. And again, I, I know, it hits me this way too, I wonder if you think, that's just judgy, <laughs> That's just unloving. Someone says they're a Christian and you're not gonna like grab them by the shirt and pull them in as quickly as you can. No, we actually do think there's wisdom in slowing down. And we get that from the Bible. The scriptures warn us that a little bit of leaven ruins the whole lump. And that wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, they wanna get in among the flock and devour us. And that many antichrists will try to disrupt the ministry from the inside. If a church is meant to be a gathering of believers, and it is, then it is paramount that the church examine the professions of the faith of those who want to come into the body. Membership is a boundary. It's, it's like the cell membrane that keeps all the germs on the outside. If we don't have a cell membrane, then you don't have a cell. It's just a necessary thing. Given the context of the Church of Acts, this was a relatively simple thing to carry out. Peter preaches, and people jump up, and they're like, baptize me, let's go. Why didn't Peter say, hey, hold on, you know, in light of everything that I just said? Well, that's because, think about where they were. The Jews were being persecuted by uh, other Jews. Uh, the, the Romans were there, they were keeping an eye on things, and they weren't really crazy about a whole lot of religion that started taking you away from their authority. And then you have the fact that Peter's preaching Jesus, who says, pick up your cross, Follow me, lay down your life and die, lose everything for me. And then these people there, they hear this and they say, I identify with Jesus, baptize me now. Peter's just like, Yeah, amen. You know? I mean, think about it. From a worldly perspective, they had nothing to gain at all by becoming Christians, there was no social advantage. But it hasn't been like that in the West. And it certainly has not been like that here in the Bible Belt. There are a lot of reasons that people try to join the church that have nothing to do with loving Jesus at all. Some people are conniving. Others are self-deceived. Most are just going through the motions. And then finally, you, just, you have people who mean well, and they come to you, but they still need to be evangelized. They still, they still need to understand the gospel and be discipled into the body. And for those reasons, local churches for millennia have had some form of membership classes. So let's talk about that. In our classes, we try to ensure two things. First, that you are a baptized believer in good standing. And secondly, that you have a general understanding of the expectations of membership. So that's why we walk through our statement of faith and our church covenant with everyone who wants to become a member of this church. The statement of faith explains what you must believe in order to be a member here. Most of it is just what you need to believe in order to be a Christian at all. And then you have the church covenant, which details how we live together in light of those beliefs. Now, churches do not have to use a statement of faith, and they don't have to use a church covenant. Those things are a matter of prudence. However, a church must ensure that their fellowship is made up of believers gathered in the name of the real Jesus. However you do that, that is a requirement of the church. Where am I getting that? Do you you remember last week, When Sean walked us through Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 18, just like a real quick rundown, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Christ says to him, I will build my church on those who make a right confession of my identity. And then in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, his authority is with those who gather in my name. So how do we make sure that this church continues to profess the right Jesus and not some other Jesus? And how do we ensure that we are continuing to gather together in his name? Well, the best way we and generations of faithful churches before us know how to do that is by a statement of faith, by a church covenant, having people read them, understand them, and sign off on them. That's that's why we do it. Once that happens, finally we know that we agree on Jesus on paper and we know that we're willing to gather together in his name and his name alone, then my favorite part happens, we do an interview. And we just want to learn what your understanding of the gospel is. And we just want to hear your testimony and and hear about how Jesus has saved you from your sin. Uh, It reminds me a lot whenever we do those of of Paul's words when he says that Christians have the aroma of Christ on them. And it's so refreshing. And you're being around somebody that you feel like you've known him your whole life, but you've just met. And you're like, ah, yes, brother, sister, that you're one of us. And, we're, and the elders are just all too eager to take that person and bring them before the church, which is the final, final thing that happens. It's important to realize that the final authority for receiving someone into the local church resides with the membership of the church. And just as Sean taught last week, The main job of the leadership is to lead the congregation in using that authority. The the elders teach us how to do our jobs. The responsibility of receiving and excommunicating members, however, finally rests on the congregation themselves. So I've touched on what baptism, uh, uh, what it means, and I'll explain in more detail later. But ultimately, the church is the one who says, yes, we will baptize you if you haven't been baptized, or we recognize baptism. So much more to say, but we'll, we'll say more in a minute. Okay, so that's the nuts and bolts of church membership. You join the universal church through faith and repentance, and then immediately you should go seek out a way to express that invisible membership in the visible local church. You approach the church, you profess your faith, and then a healthy church examines you. And then finally, the church has a God-given authority to decide whether to receive you into membership or not. So we did all that, and then we have to ask, why? Like, what's the point? Why do we need to hash out all these details? Is church membership really that important? Maybe you're thinking, you can kind of get off my back about this stuff. It's really not a big deal. It is important. It's massively important that we understand point number one and point number two. And this is why, because of point number three. What are the responsibilities and benefits of membership? Have you ever wanted to learn how to pray? Have you ever had a desire to read your Bible better? Do you want more evangelism to take place in your life? Are you hungry for discipleship? Do you want to be discipled and do you want to be a disciple maker? Are you ready to fight your sin? Are you eager to see God's glory cover the whole world? Would it surprise you? (laughs) I'm sure it will. That the solution to these godly desires is meaningful membership in a healthy church. That's how God does it. And here's how membership gives us certain responsibilities and benefits. It's kind of like a young couple that learns that they're about to be parents. The moment they learn it, they're like, oh, whoa. (laughs) Like, I've got to kick it into gear. You know, the the bar has just been raised significantly. Less PS5 time, more being a dad time, right? Uh, That increase in responsibility, it becomes a driving force for maturity. And as Christians carry out their various responsibilities, the whole congregation and the whole world, for that matter, benefit. As we're like, okay, we've got, the bar's been raised. I've got to carry out my membership in the local church. And the things that we carry out is blessing people here and there and here and there. Understanding the size of our responsibility in the church causes us to lean into the Bible more. It causes us, causes us to pray more, to spend more time with our brothers and sisters. It pushes us into Jesus. On the other hand, the Lone Ranger Christian, they just shuck that responsibility. He's, he's wandering out and about instead of putting his hand to the pump, which is where God intends for every Christian to be. He doesn't gather with the church regularly or commit to being a meaningful part of the community. If his spiritual gas tank is empty, he'll show up. He might stop, stop by to get filled up. But he isn't seriously benefiting the, the church of Christ the way it's designed And on top of that, he isn't being trained by those responsibilities that are intended to be put on him so that he will rise to the occasion and be more like Christ. The Lone Ranger Christian misses out on the responsibilities and the benefits of membership. I want to explore those responsibilities and benefits by walking through two biblical images of the local church. There are so many that we could look at. The, The Bible is just replete with these examples. Images of stones being stacked onto one another to form a temple. Sheep being gathered into a flock. A warm family full of brothers and sisters. Uh, A living vine with as many different branches that are all attached. But we're going to narrow in on two of them. The biblical images of a kingdom and of a body. So first, church membership is church membership in a kingdom. When Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom doesn't have geographical borders. It's not made up of one particular nationality. It has one king, Jesus Christ, and it has subjects, Christians. In one sense, the kingdom of God is already here, but in another sense, not quite yet. For now, he reigns in the hearts of every believer. But one day, as Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 through 11 says, Jesus will return and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The local church itself is not the kingdom of God, but it is an outpost. We could say it functions like an embassy. An embassy represents the home nation's interest within the borders of a host nation. For example, uh, the U.S. has an embassy in France, and there in France... Uh, we ha- the U.S. has its own little patch of sovereign soil that is governed by U.S. Uh, laws and codes. Well, in the same way, local churches represent the heavenly kingdom within the boundaries of, uh, of our world here on the planet Earth. And like an embassy, the local church is given authority to carry out certain responsibilities. That means that you and I have a job to do. Specifically, we are given the task of protecting the who and the what of the gospel. We protect the who of the gospel by determining who is and who isn't a citizen of heaven. Now, as I mentioned before, I don't mean that the church has the authority to give or take away salvation. It's not that at all. Salvation belongs to God. But we do have the authority to recognize whether or not someone's claim to Christ is actually consistent with their characteristics. We can look at them and say, Are you really a citizen? An embassy can't grant you citizenship, but they can look at your papers, and then they can look at your passport, and then they can put a stamp in it that says, yes, citizen. So we've explored this earlier, how the church does this, when we talked about examining someone's profession of faith. Ultimately, each individual member will vote on whether or not to stamp someone's passport and say, Christian. That's the authority to protect the who uh, of who comes into the church. But it doesn't end there. Think about members' meetings. We reaffirm our confidence in one another and say, yes, we are all members when we take the Lord's Supper together. When I take communion, one of the things that I am saying is to the body, I am still a part of you. And one of the things the body is saying to me when we all take communion together is, yes, you are still a part of us. That's how we reaffirm the who of the gospel. But the local church is also given the authority to excommunicate, to excommunion, to not say to someone, or to say to someone, uh, no, we don't think you should take communion with us because we don't think you're still giving off the evidence of one who is truly a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Think about Matthew chapter 18 again. When someone sins and you've called them to repentance and they don't listen, and they don't listen, and finally you take it to the church, and they still don't listen, then it is the church who should treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Meaning, you should treat them as someone who needs to be evangelized, or no longer within the boundaries of God's people. Similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul tells the saints in Corinth to, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul doesn't excommunicate them, nor does any other individual in the church, but it is the church who does the excommunicating. It's also very fascinating. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul urges the Corinthians to restore someone that they had excommunicated. But look at the language he uses. He says, the punishment by the majority is enough. Interesting. The word majority, that's huge. Right? It teaches us two things. It teaches us again that the church must have been keeping record in some way. They must have had a role in some way that they could say there was a majority who excommunicated this person. And then we see, again, that the authority to do the excommunicating, to protect the who in that way, and then the authority to bring them back into the church still resides with the members of the church themselves. There's some kind of vote. I don't know how they did it. Maybe they you know, <laughs> chiseled it in stone. I don't know. But they were voting in some way. It wasn't the pastor's wasn't the Apostle Paul who who received this person back into membership, but it's the majority of the church who makes the final decision. That's how the church protects the who of the gospel. We're going to get practical in a second. But the thing about this, the local church also has the authority to protect the what of the gospel, the authority and the responsibility. That means the doctrine of our church is on mine and your back. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul writing to the churches of Galatia says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's writing to the churches in Galatia. He doesn't say, Pastor, what are you doing? False teacher, what are you doing? He says, Christians of Galatia, what are y'all doing? How why are you abandoning the gospel so quickly? He places the responsibility squarely on their shoulders. We see this again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Paul tells Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Again, ultimately, it is the people of the church who are accumulating these teachers, but we hire teachers who preach true doctrine or things to tickle our ears. That's on us. So let's get practical. What does the authority to protect the who and the what of the gospel mean for the members of our church? Okay, I have this really important job to do. How does that work itself out? First, it means we must know our doctrine, not just shun not just Grant, not just any other elder. We have to know it, the individual members. How can we examine someone's profession of faith? We don't know the gospel ourselves. And how can we keep our pastors in check when they start going uh, uh, in error? And and if we don't know the essential truths of Christianity, are we just going to follow them? It's our job. If a pastor begins preaching a false gospel, the Bible lays out exactly the steps we should take to fire that pastor. It's on us. If we don't guard membership and if we don't guard the doctrine of this church, who will? Well, Paul, if, if he saw us today, if we were to come someday in the future, would he say, oh foolish members of Sixth Avenue, I'm astonished that you have so quickly abandoned the gospel. It is mine and your job to make sure that never happens. It's on us. Second, Practically, this means we need to get to know prospective members, people who want to join the church. How can we examine people that we don't know? When the pastors, when we have a membership meeting, and the pastors recommend someone for membership, and they say, we want you to receive this person in the membership, is that the first time you're hearing their name? If that's the first time you're hearing their name, you're like, oh, first time I've seen that person, well, then that means, like, take that as a good kick in the seat, right? Like, That means I need to get out there. I need to be making sure that I'm paying attention to the people who are coming into my church, that I get to know them, that I love on them, that I can go see what they're about. That's on us. Third, it means we must attend members meetings. About once every two months, we formally gather together, and we, we put someone's picture up here, and then we take a vote. Are you faithfully there to exercise that authority, to make sure that you're at your station doing your job? Do we pray for those members' meetings? Do we understand the seriousness and the weight of carrying out our duties? I want to end this section by just saying to the lone Christian who doesn't join the local church, I have to ask, how are you protecting the who and the what of the gospel? God has said that it is every Christian's job to put stamps on passports, to protect the gospel message. To make sure that the Christian message, the real Christian message is going out into all the earth. But if you aren't a member, it's like you're not showing up to work. I just want to say, brother or sister, you need to put your name badge on. You need to go into the office. You have a job to do. And as you do that job, I also just want to encourage you and tell you something glorious And that is that you will be shaped more and more into the image of Christ. And you will be instrumental in shaping other people more and more into the image of Christ. What more could we want with our life, with our our faith? Next, church membership is membership in a body. When you join a local church, you are joining a body. Paul tells the members of the church of Corinth, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The image of a body teaches us that the church is made up of multiple individuals so tightly correlated to one another, so tightly related to one another, that they form a single unit, one body. In Christ, we already have perfect unity. And in the local church, it is our responsibility to live out that unity that we already have so how do we do that well it primarily means that we must use our gifts to serve the body just as the body has many different members with different functions like a hand or an ear or a toe so also the church is made up of different individuals with different gifts and like paul tells us the eye cannot say to the hand i have no need of you nor again the head to the feet i have no need of you I wonder if you just ask yourself, why has God made me the way he has made me? Why has he given me the gifts that he has given me? I just want to let Paul answer that question, and it's not going to surprise you. It's for serving in the local church. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So it's just saying again, we are one body. We are members of one another. We have uh, different giftings. So if we are one body with different functions, what should we do in the church? Well, he tells us, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Here it is. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He says to the, to the members of the Church of Romans, you guys have gifts, go use them in the church. Do it, do it, do it, do it with all of your might. So let's get practical again. Let's just talk about doing that in a local church. I just want to give the most basic and essential way, and that is this. Make time throughout the week to use your gifts to serve one another. That means integrating our lives together throughout the week. But it especially means prioritize a corporate gathering on Sundays. One of the essential ways that Christians serve one another is by the ministry of presence. I hope you feel the weight of the responsibility of ministry of presence. And then I hope you're just amazed by how simple and beautiful and achievable it is. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, 24 through 25. The author says, And let us consider how to stir one stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as this is a habit of some, but encourage one another. So how can you use those gifts? How can you stir one another up? How can you encourage one another? He says it negatively, but I'll just say it positively. Gather together. That's how you do it. Be there. Have a ministry of presence. Now, I know you might be saying to yourself, but I don't have any gifts to give. But you do. You do. Just as the body can't say to the toe, I have no need of you, the toe can't say to the body, you don't have any need of me. We can't say that. When you gather together on Sunday to worship the Lord, and you, you are worshiping the Lord, I want you to know that you are also building up the church. You're building up your brothers and sisters. And I just tell you from experience. You, you've experienced the same thing. I can't tell you how many times I've been blessed watching someone who I know had a terrible week belt out music and, and, and singing to the Lord. How encouraging it is when I know that like that sister is really nervous about getting up there and participating in the service. But they want to do it they want to serve the body we we can think of so many examples of someone who's going through so much suffering we can think of of members who are who are just not well and yet they're biting at the bit to get into church they want to be there they want to sing with us they want to hear the sermons preached they want to give us a hug and encourage us it's not like it's super hard you know it's not like something i have to to train up and 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 like learn how to do that that's just the essential thing just be there Be a Christian among your brothers and sisters. And you're doing it. You're doing the work of the Lord when you do that. On top of that, as you regularly gather together with believers, the way that God has wired you, it'll naturally come out. You'll learn more about your giftings over time. You will get sharper. You will kind of find your your niche. And that's good. And it'll just increase the output of your Christian uh, fruit. As that happens, you will be sharpened and you will be sharpened by others and you will sharpen others yourself. So again, this flies directly in the face of the Lone Ranger Christian who says he doesn't need the church. The Lone Ranger Christian is, is like a hand that has disconnected itself from the body. It's just away from the body. It neither serves the body nor is it served by the body. And again, I just have to say, that's a tragedy. That is not why God made you a hand. He made you to serve and to be served primarily in the local church. The image of a united body also teaches us to be sympathetic towards one another. We are to rejoice with one another. We are to weep with one another. Why? 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. When my foot hurts, my whole body is keenly aware of the pain. And it should be like that with us. In a very limited sense, though, we can and we should sympathize with believers all around the world. And we do that. We. We weep with the persecuted church. We rejoice when we hear about good fruit taking place in other faithful churches. But there's something unique and powerful, and you already know it, about being there with fellow members at funerals or weddings or being in the emergency room or the NICU. It trains you just by being there. It is training you to think more highly of others than yourself. It's teaching you to give up your time, to simply be of one mind and heart and emotion with your brothers and sisters in the body. Being of one mind isn't something that's supposed to occur just once every once in a while. It's supposed to be a a regular part of the ebb and flow of Christians' lives as they live together. If we take up this responsibility and use the gifts that God has given us, to serve the brothers and sisters in our church? Guys, we'll look more like Christ. If we rejoice and weep with one another, we're there for one another. The the world will see that. They will see the glory of God. It will be a testimony of God's power to unite all types of people together under the banner of Jesus Christ. Oh, Christian, what should you be doing with your life should be being a faithful member of a church. Be the body of Christ. Live out your Christianity among other members. Finally, I just want to add that if you're not a Christian, I invite you to seriously consider the claims of Christ. He is gathering people together and he is uniting them to himself and one day, Christ will return. And he will gather all Christians throughout all time and all space, and they will be with Him in heaven as one church, and it will be glorious. I hope that you see a little bit of a glimpse of that as you spend time with our 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 church. That you'll see what kind of glorious community is to come. We want you to be there. We want you to be in that church. But I also want to warn you that those who are not joined to Christ, those who are not part of his body, not only will they lose the glory of heaven, but they will incur God's wrath forever. They will forever be on the outside of that body. So I implore you, trust Jesus Christ. Join his body. And then join a faithful Healthy, local church. If you want to know more about how to do that, just please see me or any other member of this church and we would love to talk to you about that. I said finally, but here's finally, the finally, finally. There's so much more that I could say about membership, right? It's, it feels like it's on every single page of the Bible. But I want to finish by telling you, saints of Sixth Avenue, just how grateful I am I don't want to give us a big head, right? I can do this. I'm not going to do it, Jackie. I don't want to give us a big head. But the grace of God is at work. He is. We've taken up the mantle of responsibility, and we are protecting the who and the what of the gospel. We take our jobs very seriously. We're faithful to gather together with our people. I see you guys spend time with one another when there are so many other places that you could be. And when you do leave this place, You still find ways to get together with one another. I've seen you bear with one another. I've seen you forgive one another. You honor and support your pastors so well. Brothers and sisters, you are proving the genius and the glory of God's plan for the local church. (laughs) Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And that's what I want to say. With Paul's words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He just says it so well, and I'll leave us with this. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us the gospel and then for gathering us together as a gospel people and then designing us in such a way that we would protect that gospel and bring other people in. We're blown away by your wisdom. And Lord, we ask you to just build up this church and many other healthy local churches around the globe. And we look forward longingly to the day when you will gather us all together as one church and we will sing with one voice to you, our head. Would you be glorified in it? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.